There's a question here about sitting position. What's the th main thing about the sitting with the lotus posture for practice? Lotus posture means one leg is folded in front, the other leg sits on top of it. Many of you use this position. And it means both knees are on the ground, thighs are on the ground, backsides on a cushion on the ground, so you've got a very nice triangular base. But as a beginner, I haven't got to this state, this ability to hold this posture, but also I don't feel so good about sitting on a chair. Ah. So I'm just looking around and you know, comparing myself and others, and this becomes a kind of a bit of a, uh, a thing, an obsession even. Going, trying to figure out how to sit and looking at other people and trying to find the right position. What should I do? <laughs> well, mm -hmm. there aren't that many occasions when the Buddha actually specifically does occasionally refer to sitting cross-legged. Um, but if you recognize in the time of the Buddha, <laughs> I mean, maybe the king had a chair. <laughs> just in chairs. There's <laughs> a chair like, wow, a chair. <laughs> a rich merchant might have a chair, but average people just be sitting on the on a mat on the floor, you know. <laughs> so that was totally normal way to sit down. Of course, if you're a uh, bhikkhu, then you've gone forth. You can't, when you're wandering around in the jungle, you can't carry a chair on your back. <laughs> so, so they generally make a heap of straw or grass or something to make it a bit softer and then sit on that, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that's just the way they... And I guess, you know, when you're born, when you're a little, little kid, that's the way you sit. What else can you sit on? <laughs> so your body grows into that, becomes a very normal way to sit. The thighs are open and relaxed, the back is quite grows to be strong, so it holds you up. Yeah. Um, now, you know, so if one finds that um, the body hasn't adapted to that, or the knees are too restricted, or the thighs are too tight, you know, or there's problems in the back, then you can use anything, really, just to plant yourself down. And generally recommend to try to have the legs splayed so that you get that same kind of triangular effect and the lower body is open you know, so you get a sense of the openness it means that the abdomen can really deeply relax because it's not being squashed in you know? whereas if we sit in a chair like that then it's something can cramped about this lower abdominal region and so any, any way that can do that is fine um, and of course, you know, you, this person, you must, you obviously do sit down. <laughs> you know, sometime in the day you sit down. So however you find yourself sitting down, however that is, you know, that you feel quite, oh, I can sit down. And just start with that, however you normally sit down, and just see if you can kind of develop it a little bit to make it more stable. You know, however you normally sit. And see if you can also 
gradually get to the lower back to support you. That seems quite important. You know, and this is again problematic in a chair culture where we tend to sit like that where the chair holds your back. There's the lower back muscles don't develop. So if you can get a little bit more strength in the lower back to hold the chest up, then this is really helpful because then your chest isn't resting on your belly, you see. So like that, it sinks. So this means it really helps the breathing. Um, so that's all good. Um, but admittedly, you know, I've seen many, been to many monasteries and people sitting like this, meditating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously doing something with their minds. Yeah, contemplating feelings or... So don't get too concerned about posture, sitting posture, just where you can feel settled. And don't, whatever you do, don't compare yourself with others. That's really crazy business because you're not like anybody else. Your body's not like anybody else's. Your mind's not like anybody else's. So doing that is not going to help. Um, there's another question here which connects in a way uh, is awakening possible for a lay practitioner of mindfulness meditation such as the kind I practice and or is this just the lost cause uh, <laughs> you know enfin pour cette vie well, I mean, there's some terms there. You see, awakening, lay practitioner, um, meditation of mindfulness, and uh, these are all mm, rather limited, actually. The terms. Mm, you see, I mean, so we're looking at ending suffering and stress, and clarifying and purifying the mind from doubt and worry regret, aversion, passion, so forth. Yeah, so this is not just um, going to happen purely by any technique, though meditation techniques can be very helpful as a support. But we've got to look at this as a big, bigger, all-round kind of project or way of living, as the Buddha taught, the Eightfold Path, not a one-fold path. Mm. So I think in, certainly in the West, people can really maybe expect too much of meditation. It's going to be it, going to be the final thing. And this is not, <laughs> it would be unusual if it was. <laughs> uh, so generally, we're looking at uh, morality, ethics, training in that, and re developing that, refining that. I mean, and then... This automatically means you're much more attentive to what's happening in your in your heart and how that connects to your speech and your actions. And you recognize, you know, where does that go? And you just maintaining this supervision is already a wakefulness. It's being heedful, wakeful of really important experiences. And if you can 
begin to to really sense and feel how distasteful unskillful impulses are you just really and get a sense of you can steer towards helpful and beautiful uh, responses then then you're, you're waking up it's an awakening in itself very important one mm. Mm. So the process of awakening sometimes is referred to um, as the karma that leads to the end of karma. And without trying to get just into jargon, karma means, in this sense, our inherited habits, our inherited habits and psychologies and the way that they get sort of stuck and habitual and we get stuck in our habits. And the karma that leads to the end of karma is any action that you do that begins to challenge those habits, particularly the ones that are obviously unskillful, and say, well, stop, look at it another way. So you really begin to purify the, uh, the way the mind and the heart work. This is definitely the, the kind of, you know, the big picture of, of, of awakening is this. Mm. You know, first of all, we're not being ignorant. We're actually conscious and focused. And that's the most important thing. And then we're starting to say, I can make choices, subtle choices. I can restrain, I can incline, I can bear with, I can investigate. All this is skillful. This must be, you know, the main theme for awakening and something one can do or aspire to do in your life. Remember, this is a long project. And why not? If it's enjoyable, why not make a whole life out of it? You know, it's not supposed to be just a sort of a chore or something you, you, know, you can only do for two hours or three hours a day. Mm, something you, you get a feeling for. And this will definitely give rise to a greater purity, less suffering and stress, clarity where there was ignorance, uh, less compulsive actions, and as a result, is the heart becomes freer and more open. Mm. So this already is is a powerful practice. If you develop something called resolution and patience and the right energy, you can just keep determining constantly, you know, working against those habits and one of them of course is the habit to continually doubt what you're doing and speculate on what you could be or should be or you know. and these, these first three habits that are so deep we we don't even really realize them right. so saying the habit of identifying with your mind your thinking mind <laughs> and self-definition I am this, I am this thinking mind and I'm going to work things out and this is who I am. So that's such a powerful habit and we encourage to actually pause around that. Who is that? Who is that voice? And not just who is it, but what does it do? And it just goes round and round. And it's that. That's a particular program. Mm-hmm. Then we have another one, which is to do with um, 
attachment to systems and customs, which includes, of course, meditation techniques. It means we search for some, I can do this and I will get to this. If I do this every day, I'll get that. If I do this five hours a day, I'll do that. If I get, you know, this is systems and customs. It's like a, almost an automatic behavior where we want to make our life a system, systematic. Outside of that, we, we feel very disoriented. And the last one of these is, so is that constant searching for systems and something to hold me together. And uh, the last one is doubt, which is this lack of confidence in the heart. So we're searching for something to, you know, to believe in. Uh, such as a meditation technique or a teacher, you know, something to believe in. And all these are bound up with fundamental insecurity. Uh, so with that sense of underlying insecurity, the uh, unawakened being conceives I'm a lay person. This is who I am. <laughs> you know, what's that? <laughs> And I was born 30 years ago. You know, what's that? And because I am this, and I could be something called enlightened. What's that? <laughs> These are all just mental constructions, aren't they? Yeah. So, just that simple example, you know, we think I was born 30 years ago, it says so on my birth certificate. No, there's a name on the birth certificate. Yes, there's a name on that birth certificate, and there's a date, yeah. There's a mother's name, a father's name. There's a piece of paper, yeah, it's true. Now, what you're experiencing now, your reality now, the reality you're experiencing right now, What's that got to do with 30 years ago? <laughs> Is it an identity? Isn't it just a matter of constantly shifting and changing thoughts and feelings? Right? And ideas and hopes and... Isn't, isn't that the case? Yeah. And was that happening 30 years ago? Or was it the same being? You know, when you were... Six months old, when you're three months old, you couldn't even lift your head up, you couldn't even speak. What kind of thoughts were you having then? <laughs> Gaga. <laughs> Is that your identity? <laughs> and when you were that old, did you conceive of yourself as a lay person when you were three months old? <laughs> Where did that come from? You know. So what are we talking about? <laughs> of course, you can, it's a reasonable way of talking, but you realize, well, it's just like, um, you know, if you've got a jar of water, is the water the jar of water or is it just water? If you poured it on the ground, would it be a jar of water? No, it wouldn't. Well, looking at the jar, looking at the jar, not focus on the water, not the jar. <laughs> just because it's that shape doesn't mean water's that shape. 
So this quality of reflecting and acknowledging and opening up the realities of what's occurring in the present and where there's stressing and what underlies that stress. And the anxiety that could be there. Anxiety of what will I be, will I ever be, perhaps I'm never going to be after all. You know, what are you doing with that? That's they're adding, you know, adding something that generates more suffering. And we're very good at that. You don't have to be a lay person to do that. I can do it. (laughs) Just as good as you. I can create an idea of what I should be and whether I will be and whether I'm a good monk or not. I can do that. And I'll suffer like that, you know. Will I be enlightened? Have I really wasted my time? Perhaps I should have taken up jazz saxophone instead and enjoyed myself. (laughs) You know, you can create these conceptual realities that cause suffering. Uh, you know, what I should be, what I could be, what I might be, what I wish I was. These are just, you know, and that kind of magnetic power to generate real pain. And so, you know, could you stop doing that? Say, so what's happening? And then are you breathing? Now, I don't know, but I think lay people breathe just like monks. <laughs> I hope so, because otherwise a lot of this retreat's been a waste of time for you. (laughs) And you seem to understand (laughs) you can suffer like I can, and you don't want it, and we deal with frustration and pain and anxiety, (laughs) and concern ourselves with compassion. So there's the qualities, you know. And it just put aside the label, get to the water, forget the jar, you know. Now I'll grant you that, um, you know, lifestyle is important. Lifestyle is important. And you work with that. Uh, so you can maintain some clarity in your lifestyle. By and large, the mainstream current of what I understand society to be generally recommend to minimize to look for the minimal to because to keep up with it seems to be very um conducive to loss of attention so if you avoid distraction wherever you can just avoid distraction yeah Mm. associate with good people so you're getting input something that's trustworthy reliable make a point of bringing up skillful states and doing good. Care for each other. Be kind, be loving. Whoever you can be. Give it to yourself as well. Look after your body. Uh, This is going to be supportive. Mm. And we'll see where it goes. But that's already waking up to the realities, direct realities of our experience. So a person has been doing this sitting meditation 
almost daily for nearly 30 years. And I generally get to a state where my attention is stable, my body feels unified and my mind relatively quiet. Good days I experience awareness as a kind of gentle flow infusing everything inside and outside of me. But more frequently, once I get to that state, my experience becomes stagnant. Nothing of interest happens, nothing enjoyable. I don't know any more where to turn my attention. I feel bored, inadequate. <laughs> Am I stuck at some kind of threshold? Mm. Well, yeah. Obviously, I don't know your situation in detail, but uh, mm. I think there are a couple of points. Is one is often with uh, with meditation. Uh, the main theme is to quieten down and get stable. Yeah, that's the the main theme. We're doing something to focusing on something that will bring that around, and that becomes the main aim. Yeah. And uh, um, <laughs> so that the energy can drop. The energy, if we're doing that, we're not necessarily refreshing the energy. It's not mobile enough. No, it doesn't mean mobile. It doesn't mean physically moving around. But it does mean uh, the quality of tamo vijaya, which is an enlightenment factor. After mindfulness, this is the second enlightenment factor, tamavijaya, there are seven of them. And this one is about sense of handling, inquiring, sensing, reading, how's this, how's this, how's this, and looking into experience. So this gives a certain you know, vitality. You know. uh, the mind is then also encouraged to have this inquiring quality to it. Mm. And that just helps to give it a little more energy, mental energy. Mm. Yeah. Now, when we are experiencing calm, that's an energy. When we experience stagnation, that's an energy. The energy is low or flat or not vital. Experience calm. Calm is energy is, is steady. It's, but it's comfortable, but then it can decline into so steady that it becomes stagnant. Yeah. So then your energy is, you know, it's kind of, so both of, both of those are energy experiences. And we have to remember that though energy is absolutely important because we are energy, the management of it requires view or discernment or wisdom or uh, insight which means you how is this how is this so it's a sense of inquiry and how does this feel and then being able to if the feeling that tendency towards stagnation just uh, okay what happens if I focus in different parts of the body move around inquire of course low energy can be just a fact of life it does go like that and then looking at, ah, aversion. Don't like it. Get bored. That's a negative experience. 
Yeah. So can it be aware of a low energy is like this. So the view separates itself from the energy. So energy, if it's properly cultivated, leads to a unification. Yeah. So quantum thinking mind, bringing things together. Insight is a sense of separation to a degree. It's a sense of opening around the state and contemplating how you're affected by it, whether you're pleased by it, displeased by it, makes you feel you're getting somewhere, makes you feel you're getting nowhere. So noticing how experience affects you. And, okay, this is a aversion to this, dislike this. And is it possible just to feel, to feel what's going on, not to define what's going on, but to feel it? Uh, and to inquire into it and to make one's response to that open. Mm. So we learn to encompass a whole range of experiences from the very low energy to middling to bright and even when it goes over, stimulated. You can cover all those in the view naturally one's intention will be how does this get more steady and comfortable how does this get more steady and comfortable that's true that's the view but perhaps it doesn't for a while maybe it takes an hour maybe it takes half a day and this is patience patience and relinquishment don't identify with a particular state of energy mm. And if you can bring this around, definitely that will be a breakthrough. Certainly if one is in a tropical country, in Thailand or India, you know, in the afternoon it's just... just <laughs> it just endure. <laughs> it's so hot, sweaty, and there's nothing, it's boring. There's nothing going on. Uh, and it's the same nothing as yesterday's nothing. <laughs> and you can reckon tomorrow's going to be about the same. <laughs> so then you just start to really work on your psychology of, you know, what can I be with? And that's part of purification. Yeah. Mm. And we're saying... Uh, in what Bapong, you know, when, when you're dying, you're not going to be in a good state, are you? When you're dying, you're not going to be in bright, radiant energy. When you're dying, you're not going to feel comfortable and assured. And it's very important to be fully mindful and aware when you're dying. So do it now, you know. <laughs> Learn to, to embrace the range of conditions. So where to turn your attention is turn your attention to your responses, your, your, how you hold your energy, how you relate to it. Mm. Someone was asking about um, getting identified, identification, so limiting to get to, to identify to a self, to identify these 
impulses, ideas and desires, its identification, long habits to live identified to an ego. Why? When we have perfection in us, when we have perfection in us, and the universe having creating us with perfection, is it so difficult to see the truth? Why the limitations and self-identification seem more obvious than freedom and real happiness? Generally question why is a cry of despair, <laughs> a frustration. <laughs> And it, it doesn't doesn't take you very doesn't take you any useful. <laughs> more useful is how and uh, the root condition, ignorance, not knowing. And the Buddha said, you can't know where not knowing comes from because that's why it's called not knowing. <laughs> You know, so it's, so it's a, a kind of a root uh, condition uh, that is stimulated, uh, but you can uh, see how it's playing out uh, in terms of carelessness, heedlessness, grasping. Uh, so why, how, notice that. And... Grasping, so the formation of, of self is associated with this reflex of holding on. And it's not the self holds on, just holding on. Attachment creates a self, creates a self-impression. The holding on, grasping is a reflex. You know, so it just does it. And then I arise within that. So you would say, well, then where does grasping occur? Where does that reflex to hold on occur? What's the basis of that? And say, well, it's often this is where thirst comes in. I want to have something, I want to be something, I don't want to be something. That's putting it very simply. I want to have something. Yeah, there's that instinct to have something, to be something, or to not have to be something. It's simple. Yeah. Those reflexes come in, then that causes the grasping. But there isn't, nobody has that either. <laughs> that thirst is a reflex born out of ignorance. But these two particular functions I've talked about, tanha and grasping, though these are the reflex powerful conditions. These are the ones most accessible to breaking the reflex, breaking the habit through observation, through practice, through acknowledgement, through realization, through exploration. And as I suggested, we begin to transfer that sense of the thirst into something more useful called desire or motivation, chanda. Yeah, so that the energy that wants to have something, we say, yeah, you can have something, we'll call it virtue. <laughs> so instead of having, you do it. 
So it's just a shift. You see? And then, oh yeah, I can't say I have it, but I do it. And then the results of that, uh, I mean, one feels some sense of self-respect. I can do kindness. Now, if I say I'm a kind person, you probably think, well, not so kind, sometimes I'm not very kind, she's kinder than I am. Really, I'm going to need it. So that's going to drive you round in circles. So don't make a person out of it. Just acknowledge the fact it's quite natural for us to, at times, you know, to feel touched by others and to wish to offer something. Notice that. How's that feel? These are sort of fairly rudimentary, universal qualities. And uh, noticing where one's suffering, you begin to associate and recognize, link suffering to holding on and realize once you recognize the grasping that's supposed to make me steady and secure and comfortable is actually causing me to feel unhappy and that's something you, that you can witness as an event like, there it is you know? so it's not that I am nothing but grasping but that mechanism happens you know? and it clicks in and it is it possible then to acknowledge that and just relax? Because grasping is associated with grasping at phenomena that essentially are changeable. So you can't grasp, it's like trying to hold water in your hands, it keeps running through. Because yeah. everything is changing, it's shifting, so you try and hold it and it just runs through. So, the, you know, we're looking at reality, and every time we bring some real, true viewing onto these mechanisms, the, the craving to get something is not going to work. Yeah. And I can transform that in wishing to do something, yeah. and that is, gives some satisfaction. Uh, Holding on to things isn't going to work, but mindful attention to things, that means things are still there, I can allow them to arise and be with them, that does work, it gives rise to a sense of steadiness. That doesn't come through grasping, it happens by itself. Now, if you meditate with the idea, I want to get calm, I want to get calm, that's tanha, that's craving, thirst, and there's grasping. And then you can never get calm enough because there's always something annoying, because your mind is tight. But if we're just saying, I want to be mindful, open, aware, noticing phenomena as they arise and pass, pleasant, unpleasant, bodily, just staying with that, yeah, you do get calm, but it comes in naturally. We begin to see the amount of effort that goes along with craving and grasping that doesn't take us anywhere useful. We find we can just adjust the effort to uh, motivation and mindfulness. We're still engaging with things, but now our craving and grasping is diminishing and we're finding, feeling better for it. Mm. 
And it becomes the case that the more that process continues, it requires less and less effort because things begin to happen by themselves. And this takes the burden off the ego, the sense of self. We live open and uh, if we've cultivated these ways of non-grasping and non-craving, you know, then the results speak for themselves. And uh, you don't need to grasp them. It's like your own breath. You don't need to grasp it. It's happening. <laughs> you don't need to crave it because it's given. And when we realize, you know, actually life is a given that you've got to adjust to appreciate, you know, that's a changeover from this the self always trying to have something and get somewhere. So contemplate these mechanisms. They're universal. Craving to have something, craving to be something, craving to not be something. Mm. I don't want to be blamed. I don't want to be left out. I don't want to be missing out on life. That craving. That, what's happening? Uh, you know, and really the the real truth of, of uh, the beauty of what's available for us you don't have to crave it <laughs> it's a gift you just have to tune in and receive it and, and get tune into it you know and, and activate it activate it activate the goodwill activate the the uh, Releasing, activate the honesty, activate the presence. And just, you know, this activation of it. Because craving makes you stupid. <laughs> you know, it numbs you, you're kind of stuck on that. You don't realize how much potential is there. And grasping makes you narrow and weak. Because you're always holding on to something. Mm. And so we're taking that step to find our presence. Mm. Sometimes a person sees light around people or objects, like a halo around somebody's body. And sometimes people look a bit transparent with light. Yep. And say something about this. Well, I mean, we have all kinds of sensitivities and attunements, but um, maybe you're picking up the energy fields which are around bodies. Bodies emit energies, and they are detectable. Sometimes you generally feel them. You generally feel somebody's energy, and sometimes you can. Some people can see them. But um, don't get fascinated by it. Somebody's concerned about a, a relative, a daughter, who has what's called obsessive-compulsive disorder. It means you have to keep doing something repeatedly, you know. Like you get these habits where you have to keep putting things into place. You have to knock twice on a door before you come in or you, you put your shoes in a certain order. 
you know, so you've got all these little obsessive habits that uh, they're all about security. You know? So you have to have a spoon on this side of the plate, and you have to knock twice on the table before you eat your meal. This this kind of thing is obsessive compulsive disorders. And so, how do we deal with that? How does a person deal with that? Well, um, yeah. Mm. I mean, essentially, it's uh, it's to do with I think a couple of things. One is um, security. So generally, the more uh, secure and uh, low pressure situation is, then that can help. There's also something to do with reduced attention. So the unfortunate result, I think, of our uh, general high-speed life is that younger people particularly are so used to having an attention span of less than half a second before the next thing comes. You know, it's because you're watching a flickering image or a screen. So the attention span is always doing this. That's what it's been conditioned into doing. So this means you've got to find something to fill up space so you start doing things to something to give attention to and maybe this is where mindfulness can help but um, exercise body getting a person to come into their body will always be helpful various aspects of body work i would think would be good such as hatha yoga qigong directly working on energy and also embodying 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 um to uh, both help attention span to open and also giving a foundation because this is really the mind just out. <laughs> you know, this is the mind. Yeah. It's got no basis. Mm. And in my opinion, this is one of the reasons why these kind of disorders are there. I mean, we lose the body. Is it possible to overdo investigation? For example, working with the frozen, difficult states. So, and I think I have recommended when the heart feels frozen or contracted just to gently get this sense of inquiring or relating to it in a, an inquiring way or an exploratory way. And uh, the person saying, is could you overdo it? It seems like sometimes I'm more like prodding it rather than truly compassionate. Well, when that, f- that feels true, then it, indeed, uh, time to step back. You know, it's like going from being a parent to being a grandparent. <laughs> just, just still there, but no longer so kind of on, <laughs> on it. how to feel connected to people who don't share the same values and vision of life as myself. For example, people are intolerant or aggressive. I feel lonely, sad and angry. We will certainly benefit from Kalyanamita. Kalyanamita means like-minded, uplifting or gladdening or heartwarming companions, friendship, those who can, you know, mirroring or resonating on the same themes, so it really helps to 
encourage and uh, our, our practice. But naturally, there are many people probably who one doesn't share the same views with, and then it's important to maintain equanimity. Equanimity is still relating to people, but relating to people with no uh, expectation for them to be other than that. Yeah. And that's it's still being present, no expectation to be other than that. Mm. And that can be helpful for oneself and for others. Because it doesn't mean you're participating in their behavior. It doesn't mean you're objecting to it. So you can make your own behavior your own. And other people are like this. And equanimity. Connect through that. You can also recognize that one thing connects us, suffering. And so suffering, uh, this person... However, still, they experience suffering and stress. Mm. Sometimes it's useful to even imagine, you know, somebody seems very arrogant, demanding or pressurizing. Just imagine what they're like when they sleep. Mm. You know? <laughs> or what they're like when they're sick. You know? Or what they're like when they were little babies. So you can, you know. So it's really a behavior that's a problem, not a person. And we want to separate the behavior. There's that, and there's this. There's the behavior, and there's this. And this also, birth, aging, sickness, death. Also, frustration, ignorance, wanting something also. So you can resonate like that. one of the problems or the things we have to understand with relationship, why equanimity is useful, is relationship requires two people. So no matter how much I try to bring, you know, to you or improve you or make you happy or make you... It only works if you're able to receive it. So we can recognize many times, well, sometimes the person's not open to that. And you just have to, okay, mm. equanimity. Things may change. Mm. This is a result of conditions. Every, every set of behaviors that occur, every set of behaviors that occur, every psychology, every program, every attitude is a result of behaviors, of events that have occurred, conditions that have occurred. None of it's a person. So you think, aggression. Well, where did that come from? You know, think, you know and if you're not experiencing aggression, oh, that's good. <laughs> you know, because you can see it. But this person has got stuck with aggression. And you can think, you know, where did that come from? Well, suffering for sure. That's where it came from. So some compassion. Okay, so let's um, take a break.